Before we begin, let's pray. Dear God, thanks so much for this new day that you've given us. Thanks uh, for Sunday that we can gather together, take a break from our, our regular routines. We can gather and worship you, enjoy each other's fellowship, um, and just remember that you are God and, and we are not. And we thank you for that. So I pray that as we uh, look at your word this morning, that you uh, continue to speak to us, uh, that you would uh, prompt our hearts to uh, obey you in, in whatever it is that you're uh, speaking to us today, uh, and that uh, my words would be clear so that the hearers would be able to uh, apply the things that we talk about today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the rise of David and the fall of Saul. As we've gone through 1 Samuel chapter 18, we've seen how Saul's jealousy of David has driven him to uh, repeatedly, secretly plot the death of his most successful military commander. We've seen three attempts by Saul now to have David killed, all the while appearing to be David's number one fan. Uh, his first attempt to kill David was probably the most difficult for Saul to appear innocent, as Saul whipped a spear at David, intending to pin him to the wall. Uh, you know, that doesn't seem very subtle, but because of the tormenting spirit that had been plaguing Saul, this incident may have been, you know, brushed off as almost accidental. You know, temporary insanity might be the claim. Now, of course, I don't know exactly how Saul explained his actions on that day, but he seemed to convince David to forgive and forget what he had done, and David, not one to hold a grudge, uh, he obliged and he faithfully continues in Saul's service. Saul's next scheme to have David killed was a little less obvious. Uh, he offered David his daughter Merib in uh, marriage as a wife with the condition that David prove himself first in battle. Uh, and of course, Saul's hoping that one of those battles would do David in and, and then uh, David wouldn't, or that then Saul wouldn't have to kill David himself. The Philistines would do that for him. However, David turned down Saul's offer to marry uh, Merib, uh, stating in essence that he was, he was not really royal material, right? He's, um, his family were, were simple sheep farmers. He's, he's certainly not royalty. And so David humbly declines Saul's offer to become his son-in-law, thwarting Saul's plan to have him killed by the Philistines. And thus, Merib was given to someone else. But then Saul discovered that his other daughter, Michal, had fallen in love with David. And so Saul made again the offer to David to become his son-in-law. But this time, Saul convinced some of his men to encourage David to accept his offer. And to sweeten the deal, make it even easier for David, uh, Saul stated that all he wanted as the bride price or as the dowry was the death of his enemies. 100 Philistine foreskins would be enough. And David, or Saul was sure that, you know, the mighty warrior David would take up such a, an offer and in his attempts to kill a hundred Philistines, well, David would surely be killed. So he thought. Uh, however, Saul had forgotten to take into account the fact that God was with David and had been giving him success in everything that he did. And so David and his men, they go out and they kill 200 Philistines and, and they pay Saul more than double the price that he had offered uh, for his daughter, Michal. And so the chapter concludes with Saul's plots again being foiled and David having nothing but success and prosperity. Let me just read the final verses of chapter 18 for you as we lead into chapter 19 today. It says, So Saul gave his daughter Michal to David to be his wife. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michal loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. Every time the commanders of the Philistines attacked, David was more successful against them than all the rest of Saul's officers 
So David's name became very famous. It's at this point that something changes for Saul. He's concluded that these, these subtle plots and these secret schemes to have David killed are clearly not working. And so as we get into chapter 19 now, uh, we see that his attempts to kill David are growing less and less subtle. And he is now openly and actively trying to execute David. In fact, the very first sentence of chapter 19 says, Saul now urged his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. Now, up until this point, Saul has kept his true intentions of trying to kill David, you know, to himself. But now he reveals to his, his loyal servants and to his son, Jonathan, and he urges them to kill David. Now, of course, this is going to be a problem for Jonathan. Jonathan has pledged a vow of lifelong friendship and support for David, even going so far as to acknowledging that David will one day be king of Israel instead of himself, who was, you know, by all rights, next in line to have the throne. Um, and so, uh, what's more, Jonathan loved David like a brother. You know, it was unthinkable that Jonathan could harm David, let alone kill him. So, what is Jonathan to do? Now, being a godly man, Jonathan, I think, certainly wants to obey and, and honor his father. I mean, obeying your father and mother is one of the, the Ten Commandments. That's the, the basis of Israelite society, the basis of their relationship with God. And so I think it was very important for Jonathan to obey and honor his father. Additionally, as one of the commanders in Saul's army, um, he has another added layer of obligation to obey his father as the king, right? Disobeying the king's orders was an offense, you know, punishable by death. In fact, Jonathan had almost been put to death earlier, you recall, by eating a little bit of honey that when he unknowingly disobeyed his father when they were chasing after the Philistines back in chapter uh, 14, I think that was. But if Saul was ready to kill his son Jonathan over eating a little bit of honey, how do you think he's going to react if Saul or if Jonathan were to refuse to kill David? So on one hand, Jonathan has this obligation to honor and obey his father. But at the same time, Jonathan has an obligation to, to honor David. He's made a, a pledge, a vow to protect and support David. So what does he do? You know, it seems that whichever way Jonathan chooses, he'll be in the wrong, right? By honoring one person, he'll be betraying the other. It really seems like it was a lose-lose situation for Jonathan. But then again, maybe there's a third option. Have a look at these next verses. Uh, so now, Saul now urged his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. But Jonathan, because of his strong affection for David, told him what his father was planning. Tomorrow morning, he warned him, you must find a hiding place out in the fields. I'll ask my father to go out there with me, and I'll talk to him about you. Then I'll tell you everything I can find out. The next morning, Jonathan spoke with his father about David, saying many good things about him. The king must not sin against his servant David, Jonathan said. He's never done anything to harm you. He's always helped you in any way he could. Have you forgotten about the time he risked his life to kill the Philistine giant and how the Lord brought a great victory to all Israel as a result? You were certainly happy about it then. Why should you murder an innocent man like David? There's no reason for it at all. So Saul listened to Jonathan and vowed, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. You know, I, I continue to be impressed with this young man, Jonathan. Now, what a man of, of godly character, uh, of boldness, and of wisdom. Even when he seems to be stuck between a rock and a hard place, he finds a third option, and he effectively diffuses an explosive situation. Instead of choosing between honoring his father and honoring David, Jonathan chooses to honor them both, right? He honors David by warning him of Saul's plans, 
and he honors his father by confronting him about his sinful intentions. Now, at first glance, you may not think that confronting your father about his sin is a way to honor him, but I think it is. See, Jonathan doesn't confront his father in in anger or or point out what a lousy king he is. He's just trying to keep his father from doing a, a terrible thing. You know, from everything that I've read about Jonathan, I'm deeply convinced that he he loves his father and he loves David as well. And this confrontation comes out of his love for both of them. You know, by gently reminding his father how good and how loyal David has been to him and, and how foolish and sinful it would be to kill an innocent man, Jonathan effectively saves his father from making a terrible mistake. And I would say that keeping someone from making a terrible mistake in their lives is a loving and honoring thing to do. You know, sometimes the most loving and and honoring thing we can do for someone is to gently and humbly show them that the path that they're on is not going to end up in a good place. You know, as parents, we do this all the time with our our kids, right? We discipline them and, and we correct them when they make poor choices. And we don't do that because, you know, we hate them or that we want to hurt them. No, we discipline them and correct them because we love them and we want what's best for them. You know, and God does the same thing with us. You know, Hebrews 12 talks about how God disciplines those that he loves. You know, turning a blind eye to someone's sinful actions, allowing them just to, you know, blindly persist in their sin, knowing that they're going to suffer the consequences of their actions, uh, that's not a loving or honoring thing to do. If you truly care about someone, you don't want to see them suffering the the consequences of sinful choices. You want to see them on the right path doing right things, reaping the benefits of making good choices rather than suffering the consequences of bad ones. Now, even as brothers and sisters in this church family, we have an obligation of love to help one another when we go astray, even though that might involve a a difficult conversation. You know, Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. Uh, I think Jonathan gives us a a great example to follow. I'm sure it must have been very difficult for Jonathan to confront his father and say to him, you know, what you're doing here is sin. You you need to to change directions. I, I know that would be super hard for me to try to do with my father, but Jonathan did that in a very loving and humble way. He wasn't condemning or belittling of his father, but rather he very respectfully and logically laid out the facts. And thankfully, Saul accepted what his son had to say. And I think that speaks volumes to how Jonathan spoke to his father. You know, obviously Saul didn't get all offended or, or defensive. He doesn't feel like he's he's being attacked, right? Jonathan must have really spoken with uh, a lot of care and concern and respect for his father. And as a result, Saul listened to his son and he vowed that David would not be killed. With gentleness, humility, and and a little boldness, Jonathan won over his father, and he kept him from making a terrible mistake. And so with Saul's assurance that David would not be killed, uh, Jonathan then calls for David, and he tells him the news. It says in verse 7, Afterward, Jonathan called David and told him what had happened. Then he brought David to Saul, and David served in the court as before. War broke out again after that, and David led his troops against the Philistines. He attacked them with such fury that they all ran away. But one day, when Saul was sitting at home with spear in hand, the tormenting spirit from the Lord suddenly came upon him again. As David played his harp, Saul hurled his spear at David. But David dodged out of the way, and leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped into the night. 
Well, it seems that Saul's vow to not kill David was a, a very short-lived vow. Uh, we don't know the exact time frame here, but it's not too long after this conversation that Saul once again attempts to kill David. Uh, despite Jonathan's effort to, to alter his father's path, Saul seemed determined that killing David was a necessity. And so this is now the third time that Saul has attempted to pin David to the wall with his spear, but David has managed to escape each time. And on this occasion, uh, as David flees from Saul into the night, uh, this will actually be the last time that David is in the royal court until he becomes king himself, uh, probably some 20 years later. Uh, from that point on, now uh, Saul or David is going to be on the run from Saul living as a fugitive. Now, on this night, he returns to his home, uh, to his wife, Michal. And I don't think at this point David really fully understands how badly Saul wants him dead. But it appears that Saul's daughter has a little bit more insight. Take a look at these verses, verse 11. Then Saul sent troops to watch David's house. They were told to kill David when he came out the next morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't escape tonight, you'll be dead by morning. Now, now perhaps David thought that Saul's anger would, would subside and blow over by morning and everything would be back to normal as it had, you know, in the, the last two attempts that uh, Saul had thrown his spear at him. Uh, but as Saul's troops kind of circled around the house and began watching the door, uh, Michal knew that her, her father was a little bit more serious about killing David this time, and so she urged her husband to escape. And, and thankfully for David, he had learned to listen to his wife. And we read in verse 12, so she helped him climb through the window, and he fled and escaped. Then she took an idol and put it in his bed, covered it with blankets, and put a cushion of goat's hair at its head. When the troops came to arrest David, she told them he was sick and couldn't get out of bed. But Saul sent the troops back to get David. He ordered, bring him to me in his bed so that I can kill him. But when they came to carry David out, they discovered that it was only an idol in the bed with a cushion of goat's hair at its head. Why have you betrayed me like this and let my enemy escape, Saul demanded of Mikkel. I had to, Mikkel replied. He threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. Now, of course, this was far from the truth. David had done no such thing. But for some reason, Mikkel felt that this was the only way to save herself from her father's wrath. Uh, Mikkel doesn't seem to be quite so, so bold and, and as willing as her brother Jonathan to confront their father about his sinful agenda. But nonetheless, her actions buy David enough time to escape the city and make his way towards safety. Verse 18 says, So David escaped and went to Ramah to see Samuel, and he told him all that Saul had done to him. Then Samuel took David to live with him at Naoth. When the report reached Saul that David was at Naoth in Ramah, he sent troops to capture him. But when they arrived and saw Saul leading a group of prophets who were prophesying, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also began to prophesy. When Saul heard what had happened, he sent other troops, but they too prophesied. The same thing happened a third time. Now, I'll just pause here for a minute. This is a, a strange and somewhat humorous thing here. Saul is determined to kill David, and so he sends these troops to, to go chase after him and capture him at Noath. But when they arrive, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they join with the, the prophet Samuel and his band of prophets and they begin prophesying. Now, this prophesying doesn't necessarily mean that they were you know, foretelling the future or anything like that, but it simply means that they were declaring the word of the Lord. Uh, and so whether that's you know just uh, speaking praises about God or whether maybe they were uh, reaffirming God's promise that David would be king, we don't know exactly the content of it. But we do know that while they were prophesying, they certainly weren't arresting David as they had been sent to do. And so, of course, since the first group of troops didn't bring David back, Saul says, okay, well, you other guys, you go get David. 
And of course, they too begin prophesying. And so Saul sends a third group and the exact same thing happens to them too. And you would think by now that Saul's starting to see a trend here, but apparently not. Look what he does in the next verses, verse 22. Finally, Saul himself went to Ramah and arrived at the great well at Sukkot. Where are Samuel and David, he demanded. They're at Naoth in Ramah, someone told him. But on the way to Naoth in Ramah, the Spirit of God came even upon Saul, and he too began to prophesy all the way to Naoth. He tore off his clothes and lay naked on the ground all day and all night, prophesying in the presence of Samuel. The people who were watching exclaimed, What? Is even Saul a prophet? And thus ends chapter 19. Now, God certainly has a unique way of ensuring that his will be done. Now, God had determined that David would be king, and there was nothing that Saul could do to interfere or to undo God's plans. Uh, you may have noticed that the final sentence in this chapter seems strangely familiar. Uh, and if so, good on you. You're paying attention. Uh, as Saul is prophesying, and the people exclaim, what? Is even Saul a prophet? These are the exact words that we heard when Saul was first anointed as king way back in chapter 10. Uh, you'll remember back then, Saul was just a, a very humble young man. He was looking for his father's lost donkeys, and, and God caused him to meet the prophet Samuel, who anointed him with oil and proclaimed that God had chosen him to be the leader of his people Israel. And, and it's at that point in chapter 10 that we read, as Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart, and all Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day. When Samuel and his servant arrived at Gibeah, they saw a group of prophets coming towards them. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he too began to prophesy. When those who knew Saul heard about it, they exclaimed, What? Is even Saul a prophet? This first incident of Saul prophesying came about as the Holy Spirit gave him a new heart, and a new commission to lead the people of Israel. God empowered him to lead his people and to deliver them from their enemies. How things have changed for Saul now. The second time we hear people exclaim, what, is even Saul a prophet? It's when God has to stop him in his tracks, preventing him from killing and murdering the man that God had chosen to be the next king, to replace Saul as king. By this time, the Spirit of God had now left Saul and was with David. And again, we don't know the exact content of Saul's prophecies, but it seems that while his first prophecy confirmed that, that Saul was indeed God's choice as king of Israel, it seems that his second prophecy confirmed that David was to be God's choice of the next king of Israel. No longer the, the humble man that he once was, Saul's pride and his jealousy and his disobedience to the Lord had cost him everything. And this incident really marks the end of Saul's rule over Israel. Even as we move into chapter 20 now, uh, we'll see that the story kind of shifts and it now revolves primarily around David rather than around Saul. And while Saul will continue to sit on the throne of Israel uh, for some 20 years or so yet, his rule will grow weaker and weaker and David's influence will grow greater and greater. You know, despite Saul's continual plots and schemes and plans to kill David, God interferes and stops him at every turn. It really is, as Proverbs 19.21 says, it says, you can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. You know, Saul certainly made many plans, but despite all of his scheming and all of his plotting and all of his planning to kill David, the Lord's purpose did indeed prevail. And I'm kind of reminded of the other Saul, the New Testament Saul, the one who had tried to squash this new movement of Christianity. Uh, the Lord appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, of course, goads are these, these long sticks with pointed ends that they'd use to, to prod along the, the ox and the cattle and things like that. Um, and, and God is basically saying to Saul, Saul, it is, it is really hard and painful for you to, to fight against my will. It's, it's painful and useless as kicking against a goad. Why would you do that? And I think both Saul's had that same experience. In their efforts to resist the will of God, they found themselves kicking against the goads. In the end, they were only hurting themselves. And I think maybe that's an important reminder for us this morning. You know, it could be that some of us are resisting God's will for our lives. You know, maybe we're making our own plans for, for our prosperity or success or, or whatever it is. Maybe, maybe we're pushing our agenda on our kids or, or maybe we know that God's calling us to go and, and do something or, or whatever it is. And, and for whatever reason, we're resisting him the best we can. But it's useless for us to kick against the goads. You know, we can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. And, and you know, that's not a bad thing. God's ways and God's plans are far better than our ways and our plans, right? God sees the whole picture. He sees the, the entire history past. He sees the entire history future, and he knows what is best for us, all right? He's not trying to, to foil your plans just to make you miserable. No, he loves you like crazy, and he wants what's best for you. So the question is, do you trust him? Are you willing to surrender your plans and your agenda and simply invite God's will to be done in your life? Or will you, like Saul, continue to kick against the goads? Well, let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for this reminder again uh, that we can make a lot of plans, but it's your will that will prevail. And we can either embrace that and accept it, invite your will to be done in our lives, or we can kick against the goads, which is useless and painful. So God, I pray that we would we would be wise, that we would be convinced, you know, like Saul was for that moment uh, as he heard, heard his uh, son Jonathan uh, give him this, this logical argument. Why are you doing this, Saul? Uh, maybe the question is to us, why are you doing that, Dave? Or why are you doing that, whoever it is? It's useless for you to kick against the goads. You're only hurting yourself. So God, I pray that we would be wise. We would listen to the wise counsel of your word, and we would choose to invite your will to be done, not to resist it, but to allow your good plan to work through our lives. Uh, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.